0: So a few months ago, I was running some errands in the grocery store. And as I was walking back to my car, I was reading an article on my phone. I was so focused on the article that I didn't even look up. I just sort of pulled the key fob out of my pocket, hit the button, heard the sound. So I knew I was good to walk into the car, open the door, put my bags down the seat next to me and just continued reading this article as I sat down. Maybe a minute or so later, I suddenly realized that there was a woman that had approached my car door. And so I looked over and on her face was this look of just complete confusion, maybe even a little bit of concern. And so I opened up the door and I asked her, ma'am, is everything all right? Is there something I can do to help? And she said, yeah, everything's okay, but you're in my car. I said, no, I'm not and I look around around me and oh my goodness. This is not my car. I couldn't believe it. I was so embarrassed. I just started laughing at myself. I grabbed the bag's next to me, grabbed my wallet and my phone and just kind of shimmy past her laughing as I go. By the way, she's still looking at me as though I have two heads on my neck. She's not laughing at all. She's like, what is going on here? I was so distracted by my phone and the article that I was reading that I completely missed my car. I got into the wrong vehicle. Now, what's crazy is I didn't even learn my lesson. I literally did the exact same thing about a week later. I was focused on my phone and I was about to get into someone else's car when I realized as I opened the door, at least this time I realized when I opened the door, this is not my car. Now, of course, this is a funny story, but if I'm honest with myself, I live much of my life with God like this. Constantly becoming distracted by other things rather than keeping my eyes focused on Jesus and who he is and who he says that I am. And the result is I end up perpetually trying to live a life or to get into a car that isn't the one that God has for me. Maybe you can identify with what I'm saying. There are so many things that can distract us from living for God and it can often lead to consequences that may be much worse than just the embarrassing act of getting into the wrong car. Well, today we're going to look at the character of Samson who was called by God and born with incredible promise and hope but whose eyes became distracted by the world around him. And it led to terrible consequences both for himself and for those around him. But we'll see that through it all God in his grace still used Samson despite his failings to bring about God's good plan for Israel. Our story begins with the statement Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for forty years." Now, this was the longest period of oppression that the Israelites faced during the time of the judges. And what's more is they weren't even crying out to God for help. They weren't repenting like in the other stories that we heard. But God in his mercy appeared to a barren woman and said to her, you will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb until the day of his death. He would take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And so Samson was born and the Lord blessed him, but as he grew, he developed an eye problem. And by that, I mean, he was constantly distracted by things around him. Most often the ladies, One day, when Samson went to a Philistine town called Timnah, he came across a young woman and became infatuated with her. And so he returned to his parents and demanded that they get her for him as his wife. Eventually, they complied. And so as he was on the way to meet this woman and her family, Samson was passing through a vineyard. And suddenly, a powerful lion came upon him, attacking him. The Spirit of the Lord empowered him, strengthened him, and Samson ripped the lion to pieces with his bare hands. Later on, as he was passing through the same vineyard, he came across the carcass of this lion, and he noticed that there were bees flying around, and there was honey inside the carcass. And so he knelt down, scooped up the honey, and ate it as he went along. Notice again his eye problem. He saw something that seemed good to him, and so he went for it. Now, during his wedding feast, Samson decided to challenge the Philistines with a riddle. He said, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Notice here, Samson's actually bragging about his sin. When he touched the lion's carcass, he was violating his Nazarite vow. And now, in this riddle, he's bragging about his sin. He's bragging that he violated his vow. Now, no one could answer the riddle, and so the Philistines went to Samson's new bride and they threatened her. They said, find out the answer to this riddle. Otherwise, we are going to kill you and burn you and your entire family. Now, this Samson's wife knew that they were serious. And so she went to Samson, weeping as she did, throwing herself on him and begging that he give her the answer. Eventually, he relented only to see her go to his Philistine friends and tell them the answer. Now, this just filled Samson with rage. And so he went to a neighboring Philistine town, killed 30 men, killed 30 men, grabbing their clothes and using that as a way to settle his bet with his friends. Still burning with anger, he dumped his wife and Timnah. He's like, forget this woman. And he returned to his father's house. Later on, after he had kind of cooled down a little bit, he decided he would return back grab his wife or get his wife back, and they would go on to live a happily ever after in their white picket fence home. But when he got there, he found out that his wife had been given to another husband. Now this filled Samson with anger again, and so he just set fire to all the Philistines grain, their olive trees, and their vineyards. In his fury, Samson continued to bring destruction to the Philistines. But sometime later, he became distracted again and he fell in love with another Philistine woman. This time, her name was Delilah. Now, when the rulers of the Philistines found out, they went to Delilah and promised her an enormous sum of money if she could just lure Samson into revealing the secret of his incredible strength. And so three times, Delilah tried to get Samson to reveal the answer. Three times, Samson lied, leading to three failed attempts to capture Samson. But finally, on that fourth time, Samson relented. He said to her, no razor has been used on my head because I am a Nazarite dedicated to God from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me. I would be as weak as any other man. And So one night while he was asleep, the Philistines gathered together. They shaved his head, captured Samson, gouged out his eyes and threw him in prison. But while he was bound in those shackles, the hair on his head began to grow again. Later on, when the rulers of the Philistines had assembled to offer sacrifices to their God, they brought out Samson to entertain them. They mocked him, throwing things at him. So Samson uh, prayed to God. He said, Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more that I might get revenge on the Philistines. And so Samson reached out to the two pillars that was supporting the temple. And he pushed with all his might. And once again, the Spirit of God returned to him, giving him the strength to break the pillars. Down came the temple, killing Samson and 3000 Philistine men and women. In this way, the Lord used Samson to begin Israel's deliverance from the Philistines. And that is our story today from God's word. You can read it in its entirety in the book of Judges, chapters 13 through 16. Now I find it really difficult not to marvel at the story of Samson, not so much because of his strength, but because God actually chooses to use this guy. I mean, Samson's got to be one of the worst characters in all of Scripture. At each turn of the story reveals a new ugly aspect of Samson's character. I mean, he's easily angered. He's arrogant. He's promiscuous, vengeful, disrespectful, murderous. Basically, you take the fruit of the spirit and you get Samson. And yet God still uses this guy to bring about his good plan. Samson's failure to maintain control of his life did not in any way limit God's control over the situation. God took Samson's failures and used them to execute justice upon the Philistines time and time again. And so if God can use a man like Samson, we can be confident that even when you and I make mistakes, God can and will still use us. God is not limited by our decisions because he works all things for the good of his people, whether we're aware of it or not. You know, a few years back, God spoke to me very clearly about something that he wanted to give me. It was a gift, really. But he said that I was to wait. He told me that there were things that he was putting his finger on, things that he wanted to bring me through, things he wanted to work in my heart so that he could bring me into freedom before I was ready to receive this gift. I remember God saying, and I wrote this down in my journal. He said, if you don't go through this now, it will come up again. But I didn't want to wait. I wanted this gift and I wanted it now. So I said no to God, pursued what was right in my own eyes. And unfortunately, it led to consequences. My disobedience led to pain for me and unfortunately pain for other people around me. But guess what? God still had his way with me and he did it so graciously and lovingly. And he He tenderly kind of brought me into the freedom that he always had planned for me. There were still consequences for my decisions, but it didn't in any way limit God's control over the situation or God's plan for my life. So as we wrestle with the story of Samson, God's sovereignty and grace in this story simply cannot be overlooked. In fact, Samson's birth itself is a pure act of grace that reveals God's unwavering commitment to his people and his desire to meet their needs. Because guess what? They weren't even asking for help. And God still provided a judge. God still provided Samson. And so we must keep this principle, this truth of God's unending grace on our lives and his sovereignty over all situations in the forefront of our minds as we engage with this story, but ultimately God doesn't want us to end up like Samson. So what can we learn from this story? Well, when I look at the character of Samson, I see a man who never fully embraces the calling that God gave him and who's constantly distracted. And it gets him into all kinds of trouble. At the very beginning of our story, we find out that Samson was a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb until the day of his death. Now, this word Nazarite means to be set apart. Any man or woman during this time who sensed a deep desire to draw nearer to God could make a Nazarite vow as a way to separate themselves from others for a brief period of time. It was a voluntary decision and usually temporary. But Samson was different. Rather than making this decision on his own, God chose Samson for himself. He was to be set aside for God and enjoy a uniquely intimate relationship with him and that God would ultimately use Samson to begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. This is who Samson was and there was nothing he could do to change it. No decision he made could limit God's control over this situation or could stop this purpose from happening. This is who Samson was. But perhaps the greatest tragedy of this story is that Samson disdained this special relationship. He was separated to God, but could never fully come to terms with his separateness. He never fully embraced who he was and who God called him to be. You know, you can think of Samson's identity and calling sort of as my car in the story I shared at the beginning. But like in that story, Samson's constantly distracted by what's in front of him, whether it be the woman in Timnah, the honey he saw in the lion's carcass, or eventually at the end of the story with Delilah. And the result is he keeps getting into the wrong car, so to speak, and living a life that wasn't the one that God had called and made for him. As our story unfolds, we find Samson compromising his values almost immediately. In verse 3, he says, Get her for me for she is right in my own eyes. Samson's driven by whatever seems right to him. At each turn in the story, Samson begins to compromise his values and it leads to all sorts of consequences. And yet, at the end of the story, we see that Samson does ultimately know what makes him special, even if he never fully embraced it. He says to Delilah, I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. Samson knew that there was nothing really special about him other than the fact that God gave him this calling. His strength was tied to his set-apart status and his hair was just an embodiment of that set-apart status. One commentator notes, there was nothing magical in his hair. Its power lay in what it represented. Samson's set-apart status. We watched Samson's strength fall away as his hair fell to the ground, no longer set apart, no longer different from other men. You see, Samson never fully embraced who God called him to be. He was constantly distracted by things around him, and it caused him to compromise his values from the very beginning. In the end, Samson lived a life that didn't match his true identity as a man called to be set apart for God. So what can we learn from this story? Well, first and foremost, we must recognize that Samson's story reminds us that we all need saving and that we can't save ourselves in our own strength, no matter how strong we are. This story points us to the only one who can truly save us. Jesus, like Samson, was born miraculously, but while the angel told Samson's parents that their son would begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines, the angel Gabriel told Jesus' parents that he will save his people from their sins. The angel told Mary that Jesus would accomplish all that he set out to do. Jesus would accomplish what the other judges could not. He came as the ultimate judge to deliver us from our greatest enemy, our own sin. Like Samson, Jesus would be publicly displayed to be mocked by his enemies. But unlike Samson, Jesus would walk into his death with complete willingness and innocence. He was willing to suffer and die for the sin of all mankind that anyone that puts their faith in him might be reconciled to relationship with God. And unlike Samson, Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again victorious and offers us all new life through the power of His resurrection. The Bible says that if you've put your faith in Him, you have been adopted as a son or a daughter of the Creator God, wholly loved and wholly accepted. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. We've been made holy, set apart like Samson, Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Like Samson, we have all been called by God. And for those that have put their faith in Jesus, you've been given a fresh new identity and purpose in him so that many more might be delivered from their sins. This is who you are and there's nothing you can do to change that. But like Samson, we too can become distracted by stuff around us. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm probably a lot more like Samson than I'd like to admit. I know up here who I am. I know that because of Jesus, I've been given this new identity and purpose. I'm God's special possession. But like Samson, I I lose focus on that. And I get distracted by stuff around me and accidentally get into a car that isn't mine. You see, wherever our focus is will ultimately drive us. It drives our motivations, it drives our decisions, and it drives our behaviors. For me, I oftentimes focus my attention on what other people say or think of me. I, I set my attention on the opinions of others. Other times it'll be, you know, what I can accomplish. I'll look to success to define me, what I do or don't do, other times I'll set my focus on, you know, material things, what I have or don't have. Maybe it's the latest iPhone or my house or my car or my clothes or material things like that. And each time, whenever I do this, I end up in this cycle of compromise and then end up just feeling unsettled and frustrated and just angry at life. Do you ever feel this way? If so, ask yourself, where is my focus right now? What's distracting me from Jesus and who he says that I am? You know, we're all prone to water off like Samson, but thankfully we serve a merciful God who longs to lavish us with his grace. We all face things in life that attempt to distract our attention from Jesus and who we are in him. But whenever that happens, all we have to do is turn our eyes back to him to set our hearts and our minds on Jesus and his kingdom, just like Paul says in his letter to the Colossians. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Since that is true, he says, then set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It cannot be taken. That's who you are and it can't be changed. And because of this, Paul is saying that since this is true, since you've died to your old self and been raised to new life in Christ, since we've been set apart as holy, given this new identity in Christ, our response then is to set our hearts and our minds, our aims and our ambitions, really our whole being, To set it on Jesus and his kingdom where he is reigning as king and where we truly belong. One commentator notes that the verb Paul uses here that's translated to set, he says that it's a strong imperative. It's like he's saying, keep on setting, keep on setting your hearts and minds on things above. There's an ongoing action that Paul is calling the church to here. You see, our focus does not come automatically. We have to continually and diligently turn away from whatever's distracting us and set our hearts and minds back on Jesus and his kingdom. But how do we do this? Now, ultimately, it's going to look a little bit different from person to person. But I think there are three basic movements that I want to highlight for you today. The first movement is to look up. This sounds super simple, but it requires us to take time to reflect and identify the things that are distracting us from Jesus. A great way to do this is to take maybe just 15, 30 minutes at the end of the week just to reflect on where your focus has been that week. Just ask yourself, where have I been looking to for meaning, identity, or purpose? Looking up requires us to stop, to pull back from the autopilot we've been running on and to contemplate on where our focus has been, simply so that we can then detach from whatever has been distracting our attention from Jesus. Now, the second movement here is to look to Jesus, or as Paul says it, set your hearts and minds on things above. Now that we've looked up and detached from what's distracting us, in a way we're vulnerable to becoming distracted by something else. So we must then set our hearts and our minds on Jesus. This movement requires us to spend time in Jesus's presence. And this is where it's going to look a little bit different from person to person because it will depend on how you best connect with him. For some, it may be setting aside just 30 minutes each day to spend time in his word, engaging with the scriptures and letting his spirit speak to you during that time. For others, it may be setting aside 10 minutes to sit silently in His presence and just reflecting on the Spirit being with you at every moment of the day. For others, it may be going on a walk with God through nature, just enjoying His creation, the beauty of this entire world that He's given us, and maybe just conversing with Him as you go. Whatever it is, the goal of this movement is to spend time in His presence and connect with Him in a way that works for you. Now, The third movement is to ask for help. The reality is we can't do this on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will remind us of all that He said and that He would testify about Jesus. So in other words, the Spirit helps us to point our eyes back to Him and reveals Jesus in all of His beauty and glory. Now the other aspect of this movement is that we need to ask one another for help. And this is another lesson that we see in the story of Samson. Samson was a loner, but God never intended us to live alone. He designed us for community. We need one another. And this is why it's so important to be a part of a small group that can encourage us to stand with us in prayer and spur one another on we need each other this movement requires humility because in asking for help we're essentially saying that we can't do this on our own we're completely dependent upon the holy spirit and we need the help of others to stand with us to hold us accountable and to point our hearts and minds back to jesus you know we can all be like Samson sometimes we can be easily distracted and lose focus from Jesus But when that happens we don't need to fear because our lives are hid with Christ in God all we have to do is to look up to detach from those things that are distracting us then look to Jesus by spending time in his presence and finally we ask for help we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with his presence to fill us with his love and to reveal Jesus in all of his beauty and glory. And we also ask one another for help. We ask for accountability. We ask someone to stand with us. As we do all these things that seem distracting at first, that grab our attention at first, they begin to melt away as we finally see Jesus for who he truly is. Bless you all.